Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. The tech industry is innovating at a crazy rate. What seemed like science fiction 20 years ago, now in 2023, we're debating the ethics of AI, watching Elon Musk shoot Teslas into space, and wondering if somebody we know will move to Mars in our lifetime. (laughs) That's reality. To me, however, a lot of this feels like a distraction from the true perils our planet is experiencing. We're losing habitat and biodiversity faster than ever before. And if we are to change this narrative, then we need to embrace powerful technological tools that are available at our fingertips. While new tech is making conservation easier to study and more effective, understanding how to design and launch a product that is useful for our field is not a walk in the park. So how does one go about advancing conservation tech, such as radio telemetry tracking? Nonprofits, governments, and researchers all over the globe track wildlife to understand their movement patterns to figure out how to best protect endangered species. Wildlife tracking, though, is notoriously time-consuming and cumbersome with the industry's standard tools. How can we make wildlife radio tracking and thereby conservation action more effective? to teach us about advancing radio telemetry tracking technology. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Debbie Saunders, PhD, founder of Wildlife Drones in Australia. As a child, Debbie loved being in the outdoors and volunteered for several wildlife rescue groups growing up. Her natural admiration for wildlife blossomed into a wildlife ecology career. During a field study on the now critically endangered swift parrot, a difficult bird to track and study, by the way, Debbie had the brilliant idea of using drones to reach higher vantage points for picking up wildlife tracking signals. This idea launched her journey into conservation tech, which eventually evolved into wildlife drones. Now, Wildlife Drones is the creator of the most advanced drone radio telemetry system in the world and is now being used on multiple continents across the globe. Debbie and I have a lovely time chatting about her story and how she found herself studying swift parrots, how she switched from studying wildlife ecology to building a tech startup, how wildlife drones radio telemetry system works, her favorite stories from the field, and how the company is innovating for the future. By the way, if you're in the United States, Debbie and her team will be in Texas and Kentucky this October and November to give tech demonstrations of their drones. So be sure to listen until the end of the episode to hear which conferences she'll be attending and how to connect with her directly. I also hope to be there in Kentucky, so hopefully you'll get to meet the both of us. How exciting, right? All right, everyone, please enjoy this science techie conversation with Debbie. 
Hi, Debbie. Thank you for sitting down with me and everybody here listening today to what is going to be a fantastic conversation. I just absolutely know it will be. We, we had to stop our conversation. We're like, oh my gosh, we need to press the record button. We're still talking. So I just, I just know we're going to have so much fun today. So let's start from square one here because I want this conversation to make sense. In your mind... Where does your conservation story start? What, what, what's the beginning? What's the beginning of time, Debbie? <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's awesome to be here. Thanks so much, Brooke. Um, I, I think it actually began when I was just a young child. Um, my family would go camping a lot. Um, we would go out into um, bushland areas and pitch our tent for a week or two and just spend all of our time exploring and I think as, you know, for kids, there's nothing better than just having the freedom to roam and explore. And I've always just had a fascination with the Australian wildlife and their uniqueness. Like there's some pretty special things here and um, not just the cute and cuddly ones, but we have a really amazing array of wildlife. And so from a very young age, I was just fascinated. And so it was never, it was never any question that I wanted to, what I wanted to do. I always wanted to to work with wild animals and just really learn. It's just endless learning journey. So um, from when I was a teenager, I joined wildlife rescue groups. Um, and so I learned a lot about what my local wildlife and I would care for them and understand all the pressures that they're under. Um, and then I went to university and, and did a, a science degree and I did honours in zoology and more of an ec ecological bent on that. And really, um, you know, studying what it, what animals and their ecosystems for me is really um, at the crux of everything. Like there's one doesn't exist without the other. And so sort of thinking about all that together. And, and um, while I was at university, there was always different species that I had, like frogs, for example, that I knew nothing about. And so I'm like... <laughs> I don't know anything about a frog. Why Why is that? I need to go find someone. So then I just go find a frog expert. Go, Can I come with you? <laughs> and then I would actually end up organizing entire groups of students from the university to go and volunteer for these conservation projects and different you know, reptiles, amphibians, birds, mammals, and just go on these amazing field trips with like the country's top experts. And it was, you know, it was just awesome. So that really sort of, that's where I got my first involvement directly with conservation projects um, specifically. And I did a lot of volunteer work on research projects with local possums and radio tracking and that side of things. Um, and, and everything just sort of snowballed from there. So it, it's just, uh, I guess, a lifelong connection to nature that really um, triggered, I think, everything else that's followed on throughout my career. I just, one of the things I love about exploring our stories is how we can connect the dots in hindsight, because you never know in the moment, but then you're like, oh, this string led to this string, which led to this string, and that's how I'm here today. <laughs> and so then the next string that I would love to learn more about is how did you discover the need for more sophisticated wildlife tracking technology? I'm assuming, you know, see a need, feel a need. So what was that for you? Yeah, so um, I, I worked across a number of different industries. Once I had my degree, I then got a six-month job with the um, National Parks and Wildlife Service. And 
that job was to work on a critically, or it was actually just an endangered species at the time, um, which was the swift parrot. And it's a small migratory bird. And we knew that it, it was breeding in Tasmania and it migrated north for the winter, which is a bit different to in the US where everything migrates south for the winter. <laughs> um, but yeah, these these birds, we knew they migrated um, and we knew some places where they went. But in some years, we had no idea where they were going. And so I got this job to try and um, harness the, the power of volunteers across southeastern Australia to go out and search for this species simultaneously to see if we could figure out where they were going. Um, and so I built up the, the volunteer program of bird watchers to go out and, and cross a year and survey for this species. And we discovered that they were shifting like up to a thousand kilometers northeast to in, in years when there were droughts. So we have a lot of droughts and a lot of floods and that's only getting worse over time. But back then, it was really, we really didn't know. And we actually were able to document for the first time that these birds were doing this massive shift to some coastal refuge habitat um, north of Sydney that was, was critical for them. The whole population inundated in a relatively small area. And so I just, I mean, I just, the more I learned about the species, the more fascinated I became. And, um, it became, we collected a lot of data and we showed all these really dynamic movements, which was amazing. And we now have a pretty good understanding of where they go and what they need. But what we didn't know was how they actually got from one place to the other, like understanding the movements of these birds. The entire population migrates every year. Nobody ever sees them migrating because they just go in little flocks and they're really dispersed. So actually capturing knowledge about the migration itself is very, very difficult. And But this is one thing that just captured my imagination. And you see stories of, um, you know, migratory, small migratory birds moving through the US where you have towers and the birds move past the towers. And we have none of that infrastructure. And also the migrations here are really dynamic. So if you put a tower here, it's only going to pick them up maybe once every three years or something. It's not going to be every year because they go to different areas in different years, depending on where the food is. So it's um, really challenging, um, but totally fascinating <laughs> um, system. And so it was these movements that I wanted to better understand. So I was seeking out you know, what were the options in terms of tracking these small birds? And there really wasn't anything available to do it in an efficient way. And I'd had some colleagues who had tagged the birds and then tried to track them and they just never saw them again. The birds just took off and they never found them. So they got zero data from a massive amount of effort. And because of the status of the species, it's actually getting worse. So it's now critically endangered. Um, and so it really wasn't um you know ethical to tag a bird or go to the effort of capturing a bird that is so rare if you were not going to get any data back from that experience and benefit the population and so i had to find a new way of tracking them um, in order to justify um, the impact on individuals within the population of having to be caught and, and put a tag on it so that's where that's sort of how it led me to drones um because when you're radio tracking animals, they have a little tag on them with that, that puts out a radio signal. And <clears throat> traditionally, people would walk around with their arm up in the air for hours on end, listening for one tag at a time. 
And one of the issues with that is that the radio signals are blocked by landscape features and uh, like vegetation or rocks or mountains or if they're deep in a gully or in a hollow or something like that. The signals do get blocked. And so people walk around in circles a lot of the time because they get a signal here, but they don't get a signal there and what have you. But one of the things you do normally is to get to a high point to maximize your chances of picking up that signal. And it was thinking about that that became apparent to me that it's like, well, like imagine if you could create a high point anywhere in the landscape, whether it's a dead flat wetland, which is really impossible to get high around, or if it's in mountainous terrain where if you could get up on that ridge or if you can't get on the ridge, what about if you just had a drone that could just create that high point anywhere? Um, so that was that was sort of the inspiration, I guess, for exploring the idea of having a radio telemetry sensor that could attach to a drone so that you could have that advantage in any landscape and in any environment around the world. So that's where it all began. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, and this story has officially launched. Okay, so what's really cool, though, is you actually then went on to figure this idea out. So how? So I guess we're also, too, before you explain how, for context, around what year was this? What year did you have this idea? And then how did you go about actioning? It's like, I've had this idea. What was step number one? How did you start this off? Yeah, well, we, we needed funding to to explore whether it was even possible. So it was just an idea. Um, this was back in 2008 that I had this idea. I was still in the final stages of my PhD. So I did that research um, in the run the recovery program for the species, but then I realized we had all this data and we didn't do anything with it. So I then did my PhD on this species in particular and looking at the conservation of it. Um, and it was in the final stages of that when I'm like, oh, we know so much now, but don't know about the movements. And so I had the idea, but actually convincing other people to give you funding um, to support that idea was it was a whole different ball game. Everyone who's in research, you know, knows that they, you know, applying for grants is one of the hardest things, um, and you have to do it all the time. Uh, so we applied for grants, major grants, for about three years before we were successful, and we ended up getting. Um, a non-profit partner on board, um, Loro Parker, actually, that enabled us to apply for a specific type of funding that we could then explore this. But at that time, drones weren't common. They weren't everyday tool that people have now. It was really hard to find anyone who actually knew what a drone was and how they work, never alone, um, you know, someone who was just knew so much about that, that they could just, I wanted to focus on the sensor, not on the drone. I just saw the drone as a platform and there was only a couple of organizations that had any knowledge and access to drones at that time. So in 2011, we finally got some funding to, to um, explore whether it was even possible to do this from a drone. And that was a, a three-year project um, that we, I did with the University of Sydney and they had a field robotics center. So they already had a number of drones and they had everything from social robots, aquatic robots, aerial, terrestrial. So yeah, it's a pretty fascinating um, group of people there. And so I was very fortunate to find them. And so um, we just worked with them to develop this system and we proved that it was possible, in fact. Um, and so we we set up a, a demonstration event to, to prove, like, you know, show people what was possible. Um, but we had done a lot of testing. We started with tags just on a runway. 
um, like just at the end of a like tarmac, if you like, to do all the initial development of the antennas and the radio receiver, et cetera. Once we got that functioning, we then went off into a natural environment and did some more testing there, just putting tags around. And, and that was all great. And then we're like, okay, well, we need to demonstrate this on, on a real animal. And it was really interesting, the difference between a tag sitting on a fence post versus a tag on an animal. So the animal is continuously moving um, and obviously in three-dimensional space and, and the antenna direction is changing all the time. So the data that you get is much noisier than anything from a static tag. And so, yeah, it's just another, it's just a challenge that you have to overcome. Uh, but really good to ground you in in the you know how realistic the technology is in terms of usefulness in the field. So we set up a demonstration project um, right at the end of the project. So we've done a lot of testing. We're like, yep, we proved it worked on a on a common bird species. First, we actually had trouble with attachment for the swift parrot. We we did captive trials for I think two years, and we were unable to find an attachment method that worked because there's the, 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 this species has really tiny little legs and they're really fleshy, so you can't really put anything on their legs and they didn't like a harness, which a lot of birds get a harness on for their tag. They hated the harness. They wouldn't fly if they had a harness put on them. Oh, um, there no. Was also, there was also entanglement issues, so because they fatten up for migration and then they lose weight, their harness will then actually get loose and they clamber around um, vegetation and their nesting hollows are really jagged little um, hollow openings. And so it's very highly likely for entanglement. So there's all these risk factors that just wasn't worth it for a species um, of this, of the status of this one. So we just went for the common bird, but we just got to prove that it works, right? So uh, we did that. And then we did this demonstration project that we were supposed to be the big reveal and the amazing announcement of everything we'd done, and it completely failed. So it was, oh, it, no. was it was, it was like my worst nightmare, to be honest. Oh my um, god! And we discovered a new flaw in our system at that point in time. Um, even though we were the first in the world to demonstrate this, so we we'd done we'd done the work, we'd proven it was possible. But we also identified all of the flaws of, of that technology that we'd built and how uh, it really wasn't a user-friendly tool. There were many constraints. And what happened was that there was a massive um, radio interference at the site that we chose to do our demonstration at that we weren't aware of. And so every time we launched the drone, as soon as it got 10 metres off the ground, it was just swamped with massive signals and we didn't we didn't know where it was coming from, and so, but what you know at, at the time it felt pretty terrible, but <laughs> but we actually got a lot of media coverage um, for what we had achieved, and people from all over the world started contacting me and saying, "I really want one of these things. How can I get one?" And I'm like, "Oh, you don't want it. You don't want it. It's like." <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then the people kept asking, so I, I just started exploring. I knew what the problems were, I guess. So that's what was revealed at this point, um, what all the limitations were. And I knew what had to change in order for it to be something that was of use. So I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm only going to move forward with this if I can address each of these problems. And so then I just had to find, I had to find a whole new team because we now had no more funding again. <laughs> um, and so I had to find people who were willing to work for free for a while, and, and I found a, a professor of RF engineering who was willing to come on board, which was amazing. I found another science communication student 
who um, was also willing to come on and just get experience in in doing the marketing side of things. And I went off to like innovation um, school, if you like, and and learned how about how to translate a prototype into a product, how to validate the market, and you know, and had to build up a team, had to get back to we we developed a whole entirely different system after that, and so. We owned all of our own IP, which was really great, and we were able to sort of move forward in that way. But there was a number of years where, uh, a couple of years where we were just validating the market, building this new product, getting an MVP together, a minimum viable product, so that we could get it out to people and actually get it used in different landscapes and and learn really rapidly and just keep advancing it. And, And so that sort of was where the actual, you know, Wildlife Jones came from at that point where we we went, we participated in an innovation event and at the end there was a, a pitch and you could win $10,000 at the end of that. And, and so we, we participated in that just to get the skills needed for a startup. But then we ended up winning. And, and so oh, wow. Like, oh, wow. Oh, my gosh, we've got money. Okay. <laughs> And so, um, you know, we had that that little bit of a boost, and that's when we're like, we actually needed, we needed to set up a bank account and and uh, like put that money somewhere because there were, you know, there were a, a few of us working together, and so yeah, that's kind of where it began. And once we had some some people who were um, early adopters of that technology, that was incredibly helpful for us, and uh, we were then able to go out and um, talk to investors. And we knew we kind of hit we hit the, the ceiling of the capability of some of the team at the time, and we we needed to get new skills in, but we needed the money to to pay for people's time to contribute. We couldn't just continue to well, expect everyone to work for free. So um, that getting those early adopters enabled us to then also secure some investment, and that money then enabled us to build up the team from there. So yeah, it's kind of went from bird watching to to owning a tech business (laughs) wasn't really my plan but you know here we are (laughs) that's amazing though Debbie that's incredible and also for more context around what year do you because in that whole journey that sounds like that could have been a super long time or super short amount of time so around how long of a window was that so we um, we won that pitching competition in 2016. So eight and years so, later. Yeah, yeah. And then um, it was a couple of years before we could get investment. But I was actually also at home with my kids. So I had a couple of daughters in that time and I was um, the, the primary carer. And so during those two years, I I was at home several days a week with my kids. And so... Once they went to school, I was able to then go, okay, I, need, I can dedicate myself full time to this now. And um, and so that's when it took off in sort of 2018, 19, when we got that funding. And then, yes, yeah, so we've been building it since then. I really love that you brought that up too, because I think one of the big concerns in our field, you know, me, I'm, I, you could even say that I'm right in the heart of that age range is we have this question on whether or not we can have a family because this field and families usually don't go together. But I think that that story is an amazing example that even if you have to 
table your dreams for a little bit. You can still work on it, but you can also raise a family and then you can come back to it. You know, like, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate that we still need all of this work. <laughs> so your idea is still obviously amazing and incredible. And it's completely in a different place today as it was when you first had this brilliant idea in 2008. But you still were able to, you know, raise a family and come back and still work on your dream too. So I'm really happy you shared that part because every single time I have a parent on the show, I, I pretty much always ask them like, how do you do it? How did you do it? Like, what, how do you, you know, like I, I've had one of my guests, she's like, I pack my kid with me. They go to the island with me. Like, I'm like, that is amazing, you know, or, or whatever set up that a couple um, comes up with. But I'm, yeah, yeah I'm really I think glad it you brought really that helps to have a supportive partner as well. And, and, uh, you know, it's getting easier as the kids get older. And um, so now, yeah, I, yeah, I put in a lot of hours in, in the business and, you know, someone always has, someone else has to pick up the slack when I'm, when I'm busy working. But yeah, like when the kids were younger, it, you know, parents of their school holiday program was to go radio tracking Swift Parrots with mommy. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like you that we're out, you know, tracking critically endangered birds for their, you know, in their holidays. <laughs> um, and, you know, they've all had drones in their bedrooms at various points. And, you know, they, I think they actually really hate drones personally because they might come back to it maybe at some point. But yeah. um, they're like, oh, these drones, they're just always, she's always off doing something with the drones or what have you. So, but I think as well for them, I think it's really important for them to see that like if you're really passionate about something and and you work really hard that you can make a go of it. And um, even if no one else has ever done that before, don't, you know, that doesn't, it shouldn't let that stop you. So I think there's a lot of things that they get out of that as well, although they might not appreciate that <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. I have some, I come from an entrepreneurial family, so I definitely see it. I know I've seen the hard struggle and I've seen the not being able to participate in things, but also seeing, you know, what those family members have now been able to accomplish for the community is just, it's just amazing. So I know that no matter what, in the end, it'll be well worth any of the sacrifices. But next, I would love to maybe take a nerd second. Can you teach me what is it that Wild Drones does? Like, what do you do? What is this technology that you've built that's so advanced and innovative? And if you could explain it to someone who doesn't know that much about it, <laughs> that would be fantastic. Maybe give me like the the high level and then let's go into maybe more of the nitty gritty. But I've not personally studied, you know, radio telemetry or radio tracking and this very innovative tech stuff. So Please teach me and everyone listening. What is it that you do? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, if, um, we've built a sensor that listens for the signals from radio tags. So there's researchers like uh, different organizations around the world, and it literally is global. Uh, people are tracking animal movements. And the reason they need to track those animal movements are generally because they want to understand where the animals are going, what they're doing, what they need in terms of conservation of threatened species. So if you if you don't understand like, what their home range is and, and what resources they're using, then you're limited in how effective you can be 
It's particularly important right now as our environment is changing so rapidly and our wildlife is having to adapt on a daily basis as, as the resources are shifting and moving across the landscape. Some species are dropping out of that landscape and others are, having, are able to move around and actually access those stills. So I think moving forward, understanding animal movements is only going to get more and more important as we have more and more uncertainty about what is happening in our natural world. And so from that perspective, we have conservation um, nonprofit organizations that do a lot of amazing work. So that's one group that do this type of tracking. We also have a lot of government organizations, both um, local, regional, state and national governments that are responsible for managing threatened species. And so they also um, do a lot of tracking to understand movements. Then you also have environmental consultants who um, look at impact assessments from developments and the like. And so they need to understand what impact that has. And you can only really understand that by tracking individuals and seeing what impacts there are on, on the actual annual life cycle, if you like, or of those animals. And then there's researchers, of course, at universities as well, who are just trying to better understand entire ecosystems and, and that functionality. So that's some of the key um, use cases on the conservation side. And on the invasive species side, this is largely around um, governments and, and this is nonprofits working in this space as well. But really being able to understand the movements of invasive species means that you can be more strategic in your control of those species. So, for example, um, in the US, we have clients um, from one corner of the country to the other. So in um, Washington state, there are people who are tracking giant hornets. Um, so this, this particular large insect has a really potentially devastating impact on the pollinator industry, the bee honeybee industry, because they will attack honeybees in their hives. And they're just starting to get established in the US. And so they really need to be able to track those animals to their nest and eradicate the nest before they become established and spread even further. And at the other corner of the country, we have like Burmese pythons in the Everglades that are creating havoc and devouring just masses of wildlife right across this amazing wetland ecosystem. And yet at the moment, um, understanding their movements is really, really hard because this, the snakes are really hard to track. They have to have an internal tag because they have nothing to attach it to on the outside. And, and so that means that the signal is quite weak and they're often under the water as well and under dense vegetation. So people often don't even see them. But what they want to do is find where are the nest sites? Where can we be most effective in our control? Because currently the focus is really on individual animals that are pretty much close to roads and access points. So we're not really getting strategic control in place. So all of this movement information is really important for, for both sides of, of the management spectrum in terms of threatened species and endangered ones. So people all around the world are tagging these animals and, um, and then walking around with their handheld device listening. And each tag has a unique frequency and that frequency identifies that individual. And so they're listening for one at a time. But what we do is we actually can listen for up to 40 animals simultaneously so you don't, and often if you're listening for one, you could walk right past another and not even know it. And so now you can listen to many animals at the same time. 
and you can create that high point that we were talking about wherever you are. So if you can't pick up the signal on the ground, you can launch the drone and then you're more likely to be able to pick up that signal. But also you can access areas that aren't accessible on the ground. And so um, in Everglades is a great example. You can obviously get around in airboats to a certain degree, but in different seasons and different water levels, you can be more constrained, whereas the drone can just fly right over the top of a lot of areas where you can't necessarily get to on the ground. So that can be really valuable as well. There are some requirements, I guess, in terms of being able to use that technology and that you have to learn how to fly a drone and and get a license to fly a drone and those sorts of things. But we actually have partnerships with pilot training providers to try and help break down those barriers. It's actually not that hard. Um, And so I put myself through that experience early on because I'm like, if I'm expecting other people to do this, I need to understand what it takes. And so there's there's sort of that that element of it as well. But yeah, a lot of our clients are adopting drones for the first time and and they're really getting to see the world from a different perspective and being able to collect data in a more data more often, but like with less effort, uh, but also just get that different perspective that you can also attach different sensors. So ours listens for radio signals, but you can also attach cameras. It can be just a color, like a, a normal um, camera, or it can be a thermal camera. And so there's all different ways that, and they're all complementary, um, be able to monitor uh, wildlife in different ways. So you can count populations of wildlife with the thermal cameras that aren't tagged, so broader sort of population information. But then understanding survival and movements of animals is really where you need to track the individuals. So there's some really nice complementary things there. So is it a sensor that goes on top of a drone? Is that your technology or is it an entire drone body that you've built? So there's, um, we just use off-the-shelf drones. We didn't really want to reinvent the drone because there's a lot of people doing that already. What we wanted to do was to be able to attach our sensor to drones that people can can get off the shelf. Um, so we we really did. It was a very intentional thing that we just wanted it to clip onto the drone um, and be very simple for people to use um, rather than trying to reinvent the drone as well. And I think that's where um, I think a lot of people have tried to do what we do, but people haven't really gotten to the same point. And I think probably because most of them have also tried to build a drone that specifically mm. worked with this system, but um, we wanted it to be used at scale. We wanted it to be used by anybody around the world. And and in that way, we just, we needed to have the platform be able to be delivered anywhere in the world. And, and so we just really wanted to work with existing platforms and, um, and just attach to that rather than reinventing the wheel. Yeah. Okay. So like when you partner with somebody, say that, okay, I really need to track the movements of oh, I don't know, like an invasive fox species on an island or something like that. So let's say that someone will contact you and you would, they would have to like source their own drone and you would put the, like, so they would tag the animal that they want to track to monitor the movements and see what they're doing. Um, They would, so like, you know, I'm just trying to think of the whole process from start to finish. So our clients are already um, tagging the animals because they're already trying to understand their movements or what have you. So the actual tagging of the animals, you know, to someone who doesn't work in the space, kind of like, oh, how do you do that? But like 
our clients are the experts at doing that. They already do that. And so that, yes, there, there's a whole process there as well. You need an ethics permit. You need um, licenses to be able to catch and tag animals. There's a lot of um, regulations around that, but that is something that these uh, clients do every day. Um, so they, they actually already are tagging those animals. But in terms of when they want to adopt our technology, we can actually, we have a partnership with Free Fly Systems, which is based in Washington State. And, uh, and they are a drone manufacturer. Um, so it's US made drones, which is really important for a lot of our clients across the US. And um, so we actually have a partnership with them. So people can come to us and we can actually provide them with a complete package with everything they need in terms of the drone, the attachment that they need for our sensor, as well as our sensor. So we can get all of that just delivered straight to their door. And they, they need to be able to get that pilot license um, because it is a, a medium sized drone. It's not a really tiny one because we have a, a large antenna that we need to carry. We have to have a drone of a certain size in order to do that effectively and have a decent flight time. So, um, yeah, so we that's been really great having that partnership because we can just now provide a complete package. Previously, people would sort of go get their own drone and then attach our system. But either way, uh, it attaches really easily. And we've, we've actually just about to launch our, um, our new, our latest version of of our payload or the payload is the radio receiver that attaches to the drone so we're just about to launch our new version of that and it's a fully integrated payload so we actually just clip it straight into the gimbal which is the attachment point on the drone that you normally attach a camera but you just attach the radio receiver there instead um, it just clips in and it actually uses all of the drone sensors and power etc so it's smaller it's lighter and it has a longer detection distance than um, the previous models. And so it's a pretty exciting advancement. Um, and it just literally just clips in. It's got a quick release mechanism. It clips in and clips out so you can swap sensors. And so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty exciting to have that coming very soon. Oh, that's so cool. First, heard first on Rewildology. <laughs> this is coming. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Ah, that's so cool. Okay, so... um. Maybe I, I just maybe I just haven't quite understood yet how exactly this system is far and above what's out there already. So maybe could you like maybe t explain the tech a little bit more? How is it better or, or more awesome than what was out there previously? Or I I, I don't have the right lingo. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, was, and I, I think as well that I didn't uh, explain is like you know they get the drone and and then what you know so um what happens is that once they have the the radio telemetry sensor on the drone they launch the drone and we have a base station laptop where with the user interface it's basically a giant map and so uh, they they push start tracking and as soon as they push start tracking it actually is listening for all of the tags all of the time which is the first and so they launch the drone and literally just fly as far as they can usually within um, visual line of sight so they have to be able to see the drone under the um the flying regulations and and as the drone flies around it's listening and leaving a little trail of dots on the map everywhere that it goes and those little dots are black but when they pick up a signal they light up green so by just simply flying around the landscape, you can get a very quick snapshot of what animal, what tagged animals are out there within range. And you can really start to get a sense of where they are distributed across the landscape. 
Now, that's kind of the first um, method, if you like, like a, what we call search mode. It's just flying. You don't have to change anything. It's just how you fly. Just searching as big a landscape as possible from your launch site. Um, and you might go to multiple launch sites depending on the landscape or what have you. Or in the case of an airboat, you actually just launch and um, land on the airboat. And so <laughs> you actually can, um, you know, you can actually move around and do that as well and cover even bigger areas again. But essentially the drone is up high and it's listening below the drone for all of the signals. And so it doesn't matter whether the animal is in the tops of the trees or above the trees, if they're flying or down on the ground, it can pick up the signals from any, any of those. And once it gets that signal, it can also read the pulse rate of the tag. So the tags image a signal and it's like, And that's essentially what we're tracking, right? <laughs> and and so what we're doing is trying to find the direction of where that signal is coming from and um, and also what the pulse rate is. The pulse rate is typically around 40, 40 pulses per minute or 40 or 60 pulses per minute. But some of the tags have this ability to change the pulse rate if something happens to the animal. So if they stop moving in a normal way, then it actually changes the signal. So this is really important for... Um, like captive release programs or um, translocation programs where you're reintroducing wildlife into an area where you've removed invasive species, you really need to understand survival. And in order to do that, you need to know when something has happened to that animal, find it as soon as possible. So you can determine the fate of that animal and figure out what can we do better next time? What what caused that animal to pass away? And so, you know, we can detect that immediately as soon as we're flying around as well. Then if you want to actually pinpoint the location of where the animal is, you can then triangulate. Um, so where you're getting a good signal and you see those little dots on the map, you can actually slowly rotate the drone to listen in all directions because it has a, a directional antenna. Um, so it's actually listening in all the different angles. And once you've spun the drone, it takes around one, then up to a couple of minutes, um, you actually get all these arrows pop up on the map for all the different directions that all the animals within range, like where they, which direction they are. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so you sort of get this array of arrows popping up and then you maneuver the drone around to try and get the best intersecting angles. And so like if there's an arrow you're pointing in one direction, then you want to fly so that you can get the best perpendicular intersection with that first arrow. And as soon as you get two or more bearings um, or arrows that intersect, then you start to get points on the map of where that animal is. And one of one of the really key things I think here is that what we're trying to do is understand natural animal movements. And of course, drones are quite renowned for being used inappropriately and interfering with wildlife behavior. With our technology, we're listening for the signals from a distance. And so we don't need to go close to the animals to know where they are and to find their location and to find out whether they're alive or dead. We can do that all from a distance. And so it really is less impactful to use a drone for radio tracking than it is to be walking around and trampling the habitat and, and you know, physically going close to the animal to get that signal. So that's one of the I guess, real advantages of being able to track from the air, that you're really minimizing any impact you have on the actual habitat itself and the animal itself, because it can be at quite a distance away. So, and while the drone is in the air, we have real-time data feeds. So that data is being streamed back to the base station laptop 
in real time. So as you're moving the drone around, you'll, there's radio signals are displayed on the screen and they're going up and down depending where you're pointing the antenna. And, um, and then and all of this um, information is displayed on a map in real time and you don't need any internet connectivity at all. Um, it all just um, works offline because a lot of our clients work in very remote areas that just don't have that sort of connectivity. So um, that also is, I guess, a, a key point of difference in, in that you can track all these animals simultaneously. You can access areas that you can't access on the ground. Um, and it just makes the whole operation a lot more efficient. Than, and, and people can actually do the more interesting aspects of data collection, right? So I don't see that even if drones get to the point where they're fully automated, they um, they they will just collect the base base data that is sort of laborious to collect. But I think it's really important that people are really involved in actually getting out on the ground and maybe doing the observations or assessing the habitat or what have you. And they can spend more time doing meaningful work rather than just the base data collection. So I think it can be um, really helpful to enhance a whole whole different array of um, activities that people can do around wildlife to just further advance conservation for them. Yeah, just how much more efficient somebody has to be, like how much more data you can collect. You're like, I have three months to, you know, if it's a PhD student, I have, this is my field collection season. You know, I have three months to go get as much data as I possibly can. I bet if you have a drone versus a wand, you're going to find a lot more stuff. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, here in Australia, the, the project's, are really um, limited by the number of, like people don't tag more than 20 animals because it's too hard to track them, to find everyone every day. It's, it's more than 20 years is almost unheard of here. In the United States, people take things to a whole new level and there are massive <laughs> projects and lots of people doing it, which is awesome. But it still requires teams and teams and teams of people just to find them in the first instance. So yeah, absolutely. I think there's some real, um, real advantages to being able to just get that, find where they are and then get on with the real work, you know, much more quickly. Yeah. And let's, let's dive into some real work then. So you already mentioned the Everglades and these horrifying hornets that sound like they are going to cause some major problems, but could you maybe give us some more examples? Who has launched this somewhere in the world and how are they using it? And maybe if you could give us different examples, like what are, what are some of the different applications in different parts of the world that this tech is being used in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have um, one one organization that, that pops to mind immediately is Island Conservation. They do amazing work across the Pacific Islands, working with local communities to control invasive species and then also reintroduce native species. And um, so they're actually, they've, they've purchased multiple systems from us and um, are going to be using that across the islands in the Pacific for that purpose, which is really fantastic. Then we have um, a client, one of our early, really early adopters was in Vietnam. And this was a particularly interesting one for us because uh, this was in a tropical forest and we had never actually used our system in a tropical forest previously. So uh, we worked with them to just, I just said, look, I don't even know. I don't know how it's going to work. Let's just give it a try and see. So we went up there um, and they had some pangolins that Save Vietnam's Wildlife is the organization we worked with there. 
and um, they're an amazing nonprofit that do immense conservation work with rangers and rehabilitation of animals that have been rescued from their um, the black market. And so uh, we went there and put out some tags in the forest just to try it, to see if we could pick it up because the canopy is really dense, the environment is really wet, and it's like the opposite to what radio signals like, really. So we're kind of <laughs> like, we'll give it a try and see. And it actually worked a treat. And so we were like, awesome. So then we went and actually um, got some animals that were ready for release back into the wild and, um, and you know, had the great privilege of, of seeing these creatures um, and, and seeing them tagged. And then we took them out into a really remote corner of Vietnam and released them. And for the first time ever, they were able to track multiple animals simultaneously. This landscape, I don't even know how they even think they can radio track in there manually. It's insane. <laughs> it's <laughs> steep. It's muddy. It's wet. It's dark and like enclosed canopy really inhospitable place for a human to try and navigate, but pangolins are fine. But all of the pangolins went in different directions immediately. So some went over valleys and ridges and they said that they would they could go out for weeks on end with a whole team of people and never actually find the animal again. And so they weren't getting the data they needed to understand what all of this effort to rescue, rehabilitate and release animals, do they survive? They don't know. What, what is the outcome? And so for the first time, they can actually answer these questions and then get more support for their work to actually make sure that it makes a really positive difference. So that was a really exciting one for us. And, and another one is, um, I guess, here in Australia for a different context. Again, this is out in the middle of the desert. Um, we have Australian Wildlife Conservancy who are releasing over time a whole series of different animals back into the wild. They've um, released brush-tailed possums, they've released like hair wallabies, and they're also now doing um, quolls, which is like a native cat, if you like, for us, so with spots all over it. Very, very beautiful animal, and that, but they're really mobile. And so they were most worried about tracking these animals and keeping up with them. But they've been using the drone technology and it's been really helpful like when they have lost the animals using traditional techniques, they've been able to find them with the drone. So for me, you know, someone who has worked on one species for a very long time in terms of conservation, to be able to have some technology developed that we can empower other people to go out there and use it and amplify their work, which is so amazing and so impactful, is, is incredibly rewarding. I feel really, really fortunate that I've had such opportunities to work with these people. And yeah, the, the species that I have worked on, the swift parrot, is still on the brink of extinction. So that's it's a, more of a negative story there. We've been unable to change um forest policy essentially which is driving it to extinction but you know we're still working on it and uh, things are changing and hopefully we can change it in time but having having wildlife drones as a business versus doing my research you know within a university or within government or even within private other private consultancy companies I feel like with my startup company I'm having more positive impact on conservation than I ever have before so it, it, it's fascinating you know like just how things play out in the end. <laughs> Oh, yes. I've said that multiple times too. Like when I switched my career from like the classic zookeeping job or, you know, being in zoos, nothing wrong with zoos. I'm not saying that, but I feel like I've done 
a significant more amount of impact with my show and my professional conservation tourism career than I ever did in all of my nonprofit work and all of my zoo work, even in my ed uh, higher education. I have my master's as well. So it's, it's amazing. Once you find your path and you just, ha, you just thrive in it. And so... I have to ask, is there, I mean, obviously you're going to be doing this for, I'm assuming as long as you can until you can't do it anymore with how passionate you are. I can feel the passion is like exhuming all of you right now. What is next for wildlife drones? I mean, you just told me about a new payload that you're going to upgrade, but I'm sure that's just one tiny piece of the puzzle for like the next 10 years of the company. So is there anything that you could share with me possibly about what might be next? Yeah, look, I think there's so many things we could do and they want to do. Um, and and each each time we do um, yeah, advance the technology, it is it is one step closer to the next thing as well. So this new payload that's coming out, um, because it's fully integrated with the drone, that now um, opens up different drone platforms. So what we really want to do is to be able to go long range drones. So at the moment, one of the key constraints is that we're working with quadcopter drones and they have a relatively short flight time. You can still achieve a lot in that time, so it's still beneficial. But I think all of our clients want to be in the air for longer and cover more area all the time. The more you, the more scale you can have, the better, right? The more likely you're able to um, keep track of every single individual that you have tagged. So that was definitely um, one of the next steps that we'd be looking at. Um, and we have applied for grants to sort of advance that as well and help do the R&D around that. Um, we have already done some initial testing. And the nice thing about the um, vertical takeoff and land drones, which is like they have wings like a like a fixed wing drone, but they actually can just launch vertically up and down, which is really mm. important in natural landscapes. So you don't have a runway to launch and land from. So um, having those types of drones um, where they can launch up and then just fly for like two hours and, and cover immense areas will be a real game changer for a lot of projects. And so that's something that we definitely would like to do. And we're also interested in collecting other data from the same platform. So not just radio telemetry data, but always been able to swap in cameras and thermal cameras and RGB cameras, but also uploading data from other sensors on the ground. And there are others who are working in that space. So I really look forward to, you know, further collaborations with them and seeing how, you know, together we can create this powerful suite of sensors that are really complementary. And I think in the end, and I think it's possible right now, but there's not the investment in it. In the end, I think that we can have like fully autonomous uh, monitoring stations where you have, um, you know, these drone pods, if you like, um, and they can launch and land and recharge and just be going out day and night collecting data. Um, and I think that's, like I said before, I think that this is collecting base data that otherwise just takes a very long time and then enabling people to come in and do the more meaningful interpretation um, and actually understanding what that data is rather than just getting this data feed that people don't understand because they're not on the ground. It's really important to keep that human connection and understanding to whatever's being collected. But I do think that there is immense capacity for that, in particular for for um, nonprofits and and those who are managing like sanctuaries where they've they've actually got fences over thousands and thousands of hectares, 
um, and they've gotten rid of the invasive species. They could just do a lot of their work autonomously um, and then, you know, focus on the survival of the animals and improving mechanisms and what have you to make sure that they're as successful as possible. So I think that that's definitely um, what I see the future and, and also being able to access even more parts of the world throughout Europe and Africa, um, throughout Asia, where you have a lot of um, human wildlife conflict with tiger populations increasing and elephant populations impacting on crops. And at that interface, real-time data, which we get from the drone, can be really, really important. So I'm looking forward to expanding into those areas as well. Um, and so that's kind of on the on the drone side of things. But what we have also... Um, We've also re realized is that there's also other gaps in terms of biodiversity conservation, um, in terms of accounting for biodiversity. And so we're about to, um, we're starting to develop a new product, which is helping corporations as well as suppliers to actually be able to account for biodiversity as part of their business and help to drive that positive change on the ground and helping people on the ground who are doing great work and supporting biodiversity um, in those sort of production landscapes to actually account for that and get really great value out of that so that we can get more and more conservation work funded on the ground, but also have corporates and, and financial institutions who are, who are driving that already um, in terms of having to disclose financials in relation to biodiversity assets, much like we're doing at the moment for carbon. But biodiversity is like the new carbon. And I think it's an exciting time for conservation where we can actually get more resources to do really important stuff on the ground. So it's it's a completely separate product and it's working with pulling together data from all different types of sensors. And um, yeah, we're really excited to be sort of diving into that as well um, very shortly. Oh. That is so exciting. Oh my gosh. Yes, you'll definitely have to keep me posted on that. And you are actually coming to the US soon to do some great demonstrations and you're coming to some conferences and stuff. So please, where can we actually meet you in person? Oh, look, it would be awesome to meet um, as many people as possible <laughs> while we're there. So yeah, we're, we're flying into Texas. Um, and we're going to a, a conservation drone and technology summit that is being held um, yeah, where is it? It's in Burnett in Texas, um, out on a ranch there. And it will be really exciting um, to have all different types of technologies brought together in this one place and actually see them in action in, on a ranch. Um, so that will be really exciting. And that's in early October from the 9th to the 12th of October. And uh, then we're also heading over to Kentucky, to uh, Louisville. Uh, hey, that was good job. <laughs> You've been practicing. <laughs> um, so in early November, um, we'll be uh, over in Kentucky from the 5th to the 9th. And uh, that's at the Wildlife Society Annual Conference. It's their 30th annual conference. And we're really uh, fortunate that we've been able to um, set up a demonstration of our technology uh, at a, a at a place that rescues wildlife, and they have a property that they've said that we can come out and actually demonstrate how that works. And so it's really amazing opportunity to come along and 
and see it all for yourself and um, just experience what that looks like. Because I can talk about it and wave my hands around, but there's nothing quite like seeing it in action, right? So we'll have some tags and we'll pop them out in the landscape um, and then we'll, we'll put the drone up and do some tracking and, and just show people what's possible. And I feel like that, you know, just sows the seed uh, for a lot of people to explore, um, you know, what what is possible using this technology. And um, I... For me, it's it's awesome. We have clients right across the US now, and uh, it's very rare that we get to see them. So uh, yeah, I'd love to meet up. We've got we've made time in between these to also um, meet people and and um, give presentations or what have you as well. If, if people want to meet up of that, so um, you can always just jump on our webpage and um, and you know send us a message there, and uh, we're happy to book in a time to to meet up with people. It'd be awesome. Yes. So exciting. I'll make sure I have all of those links and those uh, announcements where you'll be across the United States. I'll have them. I'll have them posted everywhere. And as of now, I should be able to meet you in Louisville, Kentucky for your demonstration. So don't worry, everybody. I'm going to take Debbie to some proper bourbon distillery. So that's already on. That is already on the agenda because it's me and y'all know I love bourbon and we are going to be in the bourbon trail. So I got to take you there. We're going to fly some drones. And then <laughs> I want to take you to some good drinks. So it'll be a fabulous time. And I'm so looking forward to that. And anybody else, go to Texas, go to Kentucky, or just reach out to Debbie. I know so many of you probably could benefit from this technology in your line of work. And of course, again, all of this will be at the show notes at rewatology.com. And Debbie, you are amazing. Thank you for persevering and building such an amazing platform that's just going to change the just the outlook of conservation. It's great. So thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's been really awesome chatting with you. So much fantastic tech information, right? If you're a researcher and could benefit from using wildlife drones technology, then I highly, highly recommend contacting them and seeing how you all can partner together. Y'all know I love connections. Meet up, hang out, see what you can do together. Also, don't forget to check out the demonstrations Debbie will be hosting this October and November in the United States. I hope to see you all in Kentucky. If you have any questions about this episode, please post your questions either on YouTube in the comment section or in the Rewildologist Facebook group. I read all comments and will gladly answer your questions in either place. Again, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. To support the show, please consider making a monetary donation at the website to help keep this show ad-free and on the airwaves. You can also purchase a piece of swag. I'm wearing one right now if you're watching the YouTube channel to show off your Rewildology love. Of course, though, some zero-cost ways to support the show, including subscribing to the newsletter where I share information about the latest episode, opportunities across the field. I've been finding lots of jobs recently, so if you're in the market, definitely sign up for the newsletter, conservation headlines worth reading, and updates from past guests. Also, follow the show on your favorite social media app pretty much everywhere. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a rating and review to boost the algorithm and let others learn from these amazing guests. Lastly, I want to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. 
To see the Focusrite gear I used to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.